On a rainy January morning in 1960, Frank Morris sat in a tiny boat docked on an island outside of San Francisco. A nearby sign read, Keep Off, only government boats permitted within 200 yards. This was his new home, Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary, also known as The Rock. He stepped off the boat and onto the stony shore for the first time. The manacles around his wrists felt colder than ever before. His ankles were chained together too, so he could only trudge up the trail. A bus took him to the prison entrance. Inside, guards removed all his clothes. Then, a doctor checked Morris's body for contraband. After the examination, the officials escorted Morris past a locked gate and two more doors with intricate locks. Each time, guards bolted the entrances behind them. Nobody gets in, nobody gets out. Finally, they reached the cell house. These three stories of cells held the most dangerous, cunning men in the United States. Morris was right at home. Still naked, he walked past the other convicts. Then, the officers gave him a shower and a fresh pair of clothes and locked him in his cell. Morris peered through the bars. He'd never seen so many guards before. Everywhere he looked, there were eyes on him. But Morris wasn't phased by the surveillance. He didn't plan to be on Alcatraz for long. He knew there had to be a way to escape. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the escape from Alcatraz. From the time the prison opened in 1934, inmates tried to flee. All were captured, killed, or drowned in the San Francisco Bay until June 12, 1962, when three convicts were found missing and never seen again. Today, we'll follow the three prisoners as they plan their daring getaway. For over a year, they worked tirelessly to thwart Alcatraz's famous security system. Then, one night in June, they put their scheme into action. Next time, we'll investigate what happened to the escapees. They may have drowned in the icy water surrounding the prison, or maybe they made it across the bay to land, becoming the only people to ever successfully escape the rock. After all, a witness reportedly saw them again, alive. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most. 
at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In the 20th century, Alcatraz wasn't just a prison. It was a fortress. But instead of keeping people out, it was designed to hold them in. It locked away people and secrets. Even today, most of what we know about the island's sole possibly successful prison break comes from one source, J. Campbell Bruce's Escape from Alcatraz. This is our primary source for this episode. Known as The Rock, Alcatraz featured some of the most stringent security measures in prison history. Bars on the cells were toolproof, impossible to file or cut through. All the doors locked automatically, and there were gun galleries positioned on either side of the cell house. Metal detectors were scattered throughout the facility. A convict passed through them eight times a day minimum, and microphones were strategically hidden around the building. In the cafeteria, silver ornaments hung overhead. To the untrained eye, those might have looked like decorations, but they held canisters of tear gas. If a riot broke out, they would drop, poisoning the troublemakers. Security wasn't any more lax out in the yard. Gun towers stared down at prisoners during their outdoor time. Armed guards patrolled catwalks on top of the building, so no escape attempt would go unnoticed. While inmates strolled through the yard, they would hear the occasional gunshot. It was the riflemen using logs in the bay as target practice, a reminder that the guards would shoot first and ask questions later. The fence, topped with barbed wire, was almost unnecessary because wardens had the greatest escape deterrent of all, the open bay. Alcatraz was an island. On all sides, freezing cold water crashed against the rocks. 
Even if a prisoner evaded the microphones, gun towers, and other security measures, they'd still need to swim a mile and a half through frigid currents before they reached the mainland. The rock was impregnable and inescapable. It was designed to hold the most notorious criminals in the world, many of whom had escaped other maximum security prisons before. Think some of America's most famous outlaws, Roy Gardner, Machine Gun Kelly, and Al Capone. Despite their notoriety, these inmates soon fell into a quiet prison life. Gardner worked in the vegetable room, Kelly as a cobbler, and Al Capone helped wash the laundry. They never attempted an escape. The heightened security made it nearly impossible. Instead, they served their sentences, filling the endless hours with painting or by playing one of the musical instruments they were allowed to have. But not every prisoner felt resigned to his fate. Over the decades, dozens tried to flee the inescapable island. One man climbed the fence and was shot by the guards, falling more than 50 feet to his death. Another disguised himself as a military officer and made it to an army launch boat. But the soldiers performed a count and realized they had one too many officers. Soon after, the convict was arrested and sent back to Alcatraz. A few escapees reached the beach only to retreat because of how cold the bay was. Or worse, they drowned. Until the 1960s, only two men ever came close to escaping. Theodore Cole and Ralph Rowe. In December 1937, the pair made it to the water, never to be seen again. It's possible they truly escaped, but there was an extremely violent storm that night. Many officials believed it would have been impossible to swim a mile and a half to the mainland in that weather. The escapees were presumed dead. But despite the failed attempts of the past, one man was confident he could pull it off. Frank Lee Morris. In January 1960, 33-year-old Morris arrived on Alcatraz Island. He was quiet, watchful, and extremely intelligent. He had an IQ of 133, just below genius level. Morris was serving a 14-year sentence for bank burglary and an escape from the maximum security Louisiana State Prison five years earlier. While cutting sugarcane on a work gang, he and another inmate had vanished. Later, the warden admitted he had no idea how they did it. Morris spent a few months on the lam, even burglarizing a bank outside New Orleans before being recaptured and sent to a number of federal prisons, eventually arriving at The Rock for the remainder of his sentence. As journalist J. Campbell Bruce described in his book, Escape from Alcatraz, when prison guards showed Morris to his cell, he wasn't bothered by his new digs. Instead, he laid awake, gazing around his dark cell block, taking it all in. One convict strummed a guitar. Another, too, called out chess moves from across the block. A few voices rose in an argument. But Morris's eyes were fixed on the guards, like a scientist observing mice in a maze. An officer looked briefly at the cells on either side of him. Then he continued his patrol around the block. As soon as he disappeared out of sight, 
Morris stuck a mirror through his cell bars so he could see the reflection of a clock. He kept track of the time until the guard passed him again. 45 minutes. There was a window there. Morris looked toward the ceiling and noticed a skylight just above his head in the cell block. Unfortunately, it was covered by bars and looked too high for anyone to climb. That was a no-go. His own cell wasn't much more promising. He had a steel cot, a toilet without a lid or seat, and two steel shelves. It wasn't so much a room as a stone coffin. In the corner, he noticed a small metal ventilation grill. It was six by ten inches and bolted to the concrete. Maybe escape wouldn't be so easy this time. The next day, one of the wardens sat Morris down and laid out the facts. If an inmate behaved, he might get out early. If he didn't, the guards could make his time in prison feel like a living hell. Morris nodded and seemed receptive, but the warden wasn't satisfied. He leaned closer and said he knew Morris was smarter than almost any other guy on the rock. If he didn't want more time added to his sentence, he better not give the prison any trouble. The warden held out his hand. Morris shook it. Their deal? No escape attempts. But Morris didn't keep his promise. Although he had no idea how to get off Alcatraz, he'd never stop trying. Coming up, Morris hatches an escape plan. Now, back to the story. For decades, no one successfully escaped from Alcatraz prison. Its security measures were strict and icy waters surrounded the island. But Frank Morris had a history of breaking out of high security facilities, and he believed he could make it out of this one too, with some help. About two weeks after he arrived, Morris was moved to the bottom row of B Block, right next door to Alan Clayton West. West was just a few years younger than him and loved to chat. As soon as Morris moved in, West started talking his ear off. And when he wasn't gabbing, West played an enormous accordion to his heart's content. At first, West got on Morris's nerves, but soon they grew close. In Alcatraz, they only had each other. But one evening in October 1960, West found himself in solitary confinement for distracting guards while a convict stabbed another inmate. So Morris sat alone in the cafeteria, picking at his dinner. Then his eyes widened as he recognized a pair of familiar faces. John and Clarence Anglin smiled at Morris. Morris knew them from a previous stint at Atlanta Penitentiary in Georgia. There, Clarence had tried to break John out by putting him in an enormous bread box. But the attempt was thwarted, and now they were joining Morris at the Rock. It wasn't that surprising that their plot had failed. While Morris carefully planned every move he made, the Anglin brothers flew by the seat of their pants. They were impulsive, fiery, but most of all, cunning. Now, the brothers' cells sat just four down from Morris's. For the first time since coming to Alcatraz, Morris had two people he could trust, even 
with an escape plan. Now, he just needed a scheme. One day while working in the brush shop, Morris discussed Alcatraz security with one of the more seasoned convicts. The older inmate told Morris there was a way out, if anyone was brave enough. He whispered that there was an open shaft right behind B Block, the same block Morris was in. Supposedly, a few years prior, an inmate had worked as an electrician and removed a fan motor from the ventilation shaft, leaving it open for someone to climb out onto the roof. The fan had never been replaced, meaning the whole passage was clear. But there were only two ways to get into the utility corridor, through the skylight or through a steel door at the end of the cell block. The skylight was guarded by metal bars, and the door was always locked. For weeks, Morris obsessed over the shaft, but he couldn't think of a way to reach it. Then, one evening in the fall of 1961, he had an epiphany in his cell while trimming his fingernails. When he tossed his clippers up, he caught sight of the small ventilation grill in the corner of the room. He scanned the cell block for a patrolman. The coast was clear. Morris knelt next to the vent. His nail cleaner had a sharp hook at the end, which he pressed into the stone around the grill. It was solid. He pressed harder. The cleaner chipped off a few grains of rock. They clattered onto the floor. Morris's heart raced. The stone wasn't completely solid. He could chisel through it. Morris scooped up the shavings and slid them inside the vent. Then he smoothed out the scratches on the wall. It was like he'd never even touched the area. This was it, his way out. If he could chisel through the wall and dig a big enough hole, he could access the utility corridor, which led to the shaft and freedom. He knew he couldn't do it alone. He'd need a lookout in case the guards came by while he was digging through the stone. He'd include the Anglins in his plot because the three had history. The brothers could be each other's lookouts, and West would be Morris's. The four would escape together. Morris waited for West to get out of solitary confinement and return to his cell. Then, in early 1962, the four men gathered in the cafeteria, and Morris told them his escape plan. Over the next few months, they'd work in shifts, chiseling the area around their grills. Each would make a hole big enough to fit through. Then they'd climb into the utility corridor, find the ventilation shaft, and climb up out of the building. From there, they'd sprint across the roof and drop down into the yard. They'd stick to the shadows, avoiding the gun towers at all costs. The four would scale the barbed wire fence and drop down. Then, it was a quick dash across the road and onto the shore. From there, they'd only have to swim across the bay and never return to prison again. Clarence's eyes lit up. He asked what they were waiting for. They could go that night. The question frustrated Morris. His accomplices didn't understand how hard this would be. He told them Alcatraz wasn't like running away from a prison work shift on the side of the road. It was a heavily guarded island fortress, and it would take months of meticulous planning before they were ready to move. One problem. Patrols passed their cells throughout the night. 
If the officers discovered the room empty, they'd raise the alarm and the Coast Guard would be at the shores before they could get away. They'd have to buy time while they were in the utility corridor and running across the roof. But Morris had a solution. He proposed they all make dummies of themselves, place them on the pillows, and then stuff the sheets with blankets and other knickknacks to resemble their bodies. When the patrolmen walked by, he'd see them lying peacefully in bed and move along. This diversion alone meant they'd need to order paint and paper mache supplies through the prison's purchasing officer. The guard would think it was for recreational use, not an escape plot. Then Clarence, who worked in the barbershop, would collect loose hair to give the heads realistic wigs. Morris also told John to gather as many raincoats as possible. He worked in the clothing room, so he had access to all sorts of surplus supplies. They could tear off the sleeves, fill them with air, and tie them off. Then they'd use them as a makeshift raft and paddle across the bay. This would keep them relatively dry and warm. It was a lot of work, and that night they began their preparations. Morris sat in his cell watching all the lamps go out. He turned his own off and sat in the dark, waiting for his eyes to adjust. West kept a lookout next door while Morris got to work. He turned his peacoat inside out and placed it under the vent to catch any falling debris. Even the tiniest sound could draw suspicion. Then he knelt next to the grill, took out his file cleaner, and chipped away at the stone. If a guard passed by, West would be ready to give Morris a signal. Then Morris would stop chiseling until the coast was clear. What felt like hours passed. His fingers ached and sweat dripped down his forehead. It was painstaking and dull work, but the chiseling made Morris's heart race with tension. Any moment, he could be caught and his sentence extended by years or even decades. Finally, after all the exhausting labor, he called it a night. He scooped up some of the rubble into a bag, wiped off his peacoat, and surveyed his progress. The vent almost looked like he hadn't touched it at all. At this rate, his 14-year sentence would be up before he made it through the eight inches of concrete. He needed to move faster, and the file cleaner wasn't going to do the trick. So, according to Campbell's book, Morris got a dime from another inmate and chipped off some silver shavings. Then, he used those particles to weld his hooked cleaner onto the end of a broken spoon. This way, he'd have more leverage and could work for hours without cramping up. After five days, he managed to pry the vent loose. He could put it back into the wall, but he worried the guards would realize the grill wasn't completely attached. So he wetted old magazine pages and kneaded them together like dough until they formed a paste. He stomped on it to flatten the sticky substance into a clump, which eventually hardened into cardboard. He painted them to look exactly like the grill and the green of the neighboring wall. When he put the clumps over the old vent, even Morris couldn't tell the difference. As an added precaution, Morris requested an accordion like the one West had. He had no interest in learning how to play, but he covered the vent with the accordion's case to avoid suspicion. 
Over the next few months, Morris and his men worked day and night. John Anglin toiled in the basement, where he had access to prison supplies. Every day, he wore a new raincoat up to his cell. The crew needed as many as possible to build a raft. When a guard stopped him to ask why he wore a raincoat every day, John explained he got cold easily because he was from the South. The officer bought it and let him through, never realizing he was actually wearing two raincoats at the time. Meanwhile, Claris and Morris kept chipping away at their tunnels. Finally, one night in 1962, Morris widened his hole enough that he could fit his head and shoulders through. He couldn't resist taking a peek. Morris squeezed in and stared around the utility corridor. Hundreds of vents and lit grills dotted the passageway like stars. Morris snapped out of his trance when he heard a laugh from a nearby cell echo in the vents. He realized that if he could hear other inmates, other inmates could probably hear him. He returned to his room and resealed the grate. Weeks later, in May 1962, he completely finished his excavation. Now Morris could wriggle his entire body through the hole and crawl around the utility corridor. The difficult part was done. John Anglin and Alan West just had to complete their escape holes and papier-mâché dummies. Then they could all escape. Freedom was so close, but they still needed everything to go according to plan. And soon, the men encountered an obstacle they couldn't have anticipated. Coming up, Morris considers giving up. Now, back to the story. After months of work, Frank Morris and Clarence Anglin finally created tunnels big enough to slip through. Any night, they'd hope to climb up the shaft and sprint to freedom. But before they tried to escape, Morris insisted he and Clarence scout ahead, just in case they discovered any pitfalls. One night, the pair tiptoed down the corridor until they reached the shaft that led to the roof. Morris climbed onto Clarence's shoulders for a boost. For a few minutes, he considered the situation. Then he signaled Clarence to bring him back down. Once he was on the ground, Morris was considerably less optimistic. He'd spotted a rain cap at the top held by six rivets in iron uprights and a tight grid of crossbars. Long story short, they couldn't easily knock it off. They were trapped. But after spending the better part of a year planning the escape, Morris wasn't ready to give up. He stayed up all night thinking about it. At breakfast the next day, West and the Anglin brothers sat with bated breath as Morris at last announced his plan. They'd make a drill to lift the rivets. The men all agreed it was a brilliant idea. They just had one small problem. How were four Alcatraz inmates going to make a drill? That afternoon, West and Morris played their accordions when Morris noticed a small fan in the corner. Inspiration hit. He asked West to get up and distract the guard. Minutes later, while West spoke to the officer, Morris scooped up the fan and crammed it in his case, crushing his accordion. Back at his cell, he removed the fans and finagled a stolen drill head into the motor. 
It wasn't a perfect fit, but it would have to do. That night, he and Clarence returned to the shaft. The burly Anglin brother went up first, bending the primary bars back through sheer might. Then he boosted Morris and his drill up. Morris wrapped a raincoat around the motor to muffle the sound, then turned it on. He pressed the drill against one of the rivets. The mechanical fastener fluttered, but it didn't move. He tried again. Still, it didn't work. Morris climbed down and told Clarence the drill was a bust. It just didn't have enough power. They were out of luck. Clarence wouldn't accept that. He said six rivets weren't going to stop them. Over the next few days, the team gathered carborundum strings from the inmate mechanics. In the shop, they utilized the material for fine grooving and repairs. But the escapees would use the string for cutting. After the cell block went to sleep, the group went up the shaft in pairs to work on the rivet heads. Slowly, the string cut through the steel. When the head got close to falling off, they turned on a flashlight and caught the piece so it wouldn't clatter on the floor. Weeks passed before Clarence finally sawed through the last rivet. The convicts were inches away from freedom. At breakfast in early June 1962, John asked if it was time to go. He said they couldn't keep this up for years. It had been six months since they started chipping away at their vents. Morris shot him a cold look. As always, he emphasized patience to the men and stressed the risks of heading out too soon. The team needed to know what they were up against before they made their break, so Morris would study tide charts and weather patterns before the big night. The other men stared at him. Their impatience was palpable. Morris knew he couldn't hold them back any longer, so he said they could leave in ten days. The Anglins begrudgingly accepted the timeline, but West grew concerned. If he had to wait over a week, then he'd have to fix a major problem in his cell. He'd made his hole too big, and now his cardboard grill kept falling out. He feared a guard would come by for an inspection and discover the miniature tunnel. So that night, West snuck into the utility corridor and found a bucket of concrete being used for a toilet installation. He filled up his shoes and returned to his cell, where he mixed the cement in his sink and then spread it throughout the hole. By morning, the tunnel could hold the grill again. The crisis had been averted with nine days to spare. The next Monday, with a week to go, Morris lay in his bed reading a magazine about the bay when he heard a muffled sound behind his vent. He turned on his light and crouched next to the grate. Through the small cardboard bars, he saw John's face staring back at him. The older Anglin brothers said the escape was on tonight. In a blink, John disappeared behind the wall. Morris demanded to know what the rush was, but there was no time to argue. Morris grabbed his sack of raincoat sleeves and slipped through the hole. He replaced the vent behind him and tugged the accordion case in front of the tunnel with a string. He started heading down the corridor, but stopped. West was still in his cell, and Morris could hear digging. He knelt down and peered through his neighbor's grate. West's face was contorted in fear and anxiety. 
He said the cement around his ventilation grill wouldn't budge and he couldn't get the hole open. He'd spent months digging the tunnel and now, ironically, he'd resealed it and trapped himself. Morris told him to be quiet until the patrolman walked by, then redig the hole. He reassured West, saying he'd see him on top. As he walked away, he could still hear West struggling with the vent, but there was nothing he could do now. Morris and the Anglin brothers shimmied up the shaft until they were pressed against the rain cap. Morris warned them not to talk once they were outside. Their voices would be better heard in the calm night air. The Anglins fell silent, and Morris pushed up the rain cap. He tried to lay it gently on the roof, but it slipped out and onto the concrete. One of the Anglins swore. They all waited for the sirens to go off. Down below, a patrolman heard the noise. He rushed to alert his supervisor, but they assumed it just came from the upstairs hospital. Once it was safe to move again, Clarence snapped at Morris to get going. He leapt out and ran across the roof in a crouch. The brothers followed. All three hid behind a skylight. Morris looked out at the two gun towers. They were the biggest danger. If he was spotted, the riflemen wouldn't ask questions or warn him to stop. They'd just take him down. And the three would be climbing into an open area illuminated by floodlights. They'd be sitting ducks. They reached the edge of a nearby roof and lied down. Morris tied the raft of raincoats to his belt and dragged himself over the edge. He slid down the pipe as smoothly as possible. As soon as he hit the ground, he crawled into the shadows on his stomach. Then he breathed and watched the brothers do the same. The three crawled toward the fence. One by one, they climbed up and over the barbed wire. Then they leapt down to the ground. They dashed across the road and reached the shore of Alcatraz Island. Morris exhaled. In the distance, the lights of the Golden Gate Bridge shone through the fog. The plan had worked, so far. But he still had to brave a mile and a half of freezing cold water. Seemingly, no escapee had ever survived it. It's not clear what happened next, but it's believed that Frank Morris and the Anglins readied the makeshift raft, likely with wooden boards nearby. And since West still hadn't shown, the three men lay down and pushed off, disappearing into the fog. The morning of June 12th, a patrolman walked through B-Block, checking on the prisoners. As far as he could tell, it was a day like any other. Alan West was up and getting dressed. Next, the guard reached Morris's cell and ordered him up and out of bed. But Morris didn't move. It was strange that Morris was sleeping in. Inmates knew to be up for inspection or risk punishment. The guard repeated his orders and said he wouldn't give them again. Still, Morris didn't budge. The patrolman grew angry and entered the cell. He nudged Morris's body to wake him up. Morris's head started to move. Then it dropped off the bed and rolled across the floor, stopping at the patrolman's feet. Finally, he realized he was looking at paper mache painted to look like Morris. The guard sprinted out of the room to notify his supervisors. 
Frank Morris had escaped Alcatraz Island. Within minutes, the search was on. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with Part 2 of Escape from Alcatraz. For more information on the Escape from Alcatraz, amongst the many sources we used, we found J. Campbell Bruce's book, Escape from Alcatraz, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Alex Bernard, edited by Ben Hanani and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Thank you.